But then one day I was driving my little boy to school and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. So let me, uh, quick caveat and say, it was really hard not to try to preach two entire sermons this morning, which when I sent this sermon to my friend, we always read each other's sermons. She was like, I'm sure your congregation appreciates that. Um, because I love both of these texts so much, the gospel and the book of Jonah. I remind you that I preached an entire sermon on the whole book of Jonah about a year and a half ago during Lent. And this week in the devotional email, if you get that, I asked Nick if we could link that sermon there if you want to hear me geek out on the whole book of Jonah. You can do that there. It is such a funny, hilarious, uh, delightful book uh, of, of scripture, and it's so wonderful. So if you want to hear it, you can go do a deeper dive there to hear about one of my favorite uh, Bible antiheroes, which is Jonah's perfect title. The gospel story we heard this morning as well is usually or often called the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. New Testament and Jewish scholar Amy Jill Levine suggests we might consider some alternative names and offers two suggestions. The first, the parable of the generous landowner. And the second, which is my personal favorite, the parable of full employment where everybody gets a living wage. Now, when Dr. Amy Jill Levine speaks, it is good practice to listen. She has committed her life's work to reframing the stories of Jesus, parables in particular, with an eye to the culture in which they originally told, and a concerted effort to undo centuries of anti-Semitism in their telling. For example, in this parable, which is, I think, familiar to a lot of us, I would hazard that many of us have heard it read in a typical way, which is usually the landowner is God, the workers are Christians, and the daily wage is salvation. Right? That's kind of how we've taken this story. The workers hired early in the day are lifelong Christians. The workers hired towards the evening are deathbed Christians or deathbed converts. Another way then, which I think maybe some of us have heard it heard read that way, but another way that is more a little newer to read this parable, often used when taking into account Matthew's original Gentile audience, what implies that the Jews, the Jewish faith, were the workers hired in the morning, the original chosen people, and the Gentiles, non-Jews, are the workers hired later. Amy Gillivine explains that the problem with reading it this way is that equating the study and observance of Torah with grueling manual labor turns the process into a hindrance, not a joy. She says, I understand why this gets preached, why faith over a lifetime gets preached. It is easy. And for quite a number of centuries, the church defined itself over and against Judaism but she said, today, I believe we are at a point where the church does not need to make Judaism look bad in order for itself to look good. So then if we take Dr. Levine's study at its face value, how then do we read this, right? Which, 
way to interpret this story. A parable is meant to be interpreted, right? It is not the way it is. It's not a true story. It's a tale, an object lesson to teach us something. What is the best way to read it? I think the first question is to ask, what do we miss when we make this about the daily wage equaling salvation? What do we miss when we make this whole story about salvation and we remove it from our daily life lived here and now? I think the best way we can see how to read this parable, see how to interpret it ourselves, is to look at what Jesus was talking about right before this. Jesus, over the sections of Matthew 17, 18, 19, and now 20, has been talking about the kingdom of God for quite a bit. He's been gathering crowds, answering questions. In just the chapter before this, Jesus welcomed little children, saying the kingdom belongs to these. He told people in the gathered crowd that the wealthy would have a hard time choosing love over money after his encounter with the rich young ruler. And then just before he begins this parable, Peter says to Jesus, Look, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. What do we get? And then Jesus tells this parable. We miss that part of the story when we start where we start. When we have that lens of Peter's question, it changes this parable quite a bit, doesn't it? It's not actually about a daily wage or salvation or the work we do. It is about what we have decided is fair or not. Now, not to dig on Peter, I think he is speaking a very true feeling. We did everything right. Shouldn't we get something more? And this is where Jesus speaks this parable. Now, in this parable, the workers enter an agreement with their boss. They agree they'll work for a day. The boss will pay them what is right. This is the same agreement made with workers that start a few hours later and a few hours later and a few hours later. Pay what is right. What you, the boss, thinks is right. Now, notice the vineyard owner, the boss, doesn't say he'll pay what is fair or what is equal, but what is right. This is the agreement. When you remember that this is what they've all agreed to, then the complaint of the full-day workers seems almost silly at the end of the day, since the boss is not going back on the agreement made at the start. And what is their complaint exactly? It sounds kind of a lot like Peter's question, almost like Jesus was trying to answer it in this parable. Jesus flips it around in a little way that I think is honestly kind of harsh, but true and relatable. Because what they're complaining about is not that they weren't paid enough. It's not that they want more. It's the complaint that you, the landowner, made one-hour workers equal to us, the ones who did more. Their complaint is not, you didn't pay us enough, but we deserve more, not because we worked more, but because they worked less. What a complaint. Now, it is 
a delight that this text is paired with Jonah on this day because it helps us focus on the actual issue the parable is trying to address. In the section that we heard this morning, Jonah is so angry that God offered grace to people that Jonah had already decided did not deserve to be saved. And God gives Jonah his own little parable, his own little object lesson to make God's point, right? He raises up a bush and it gives Jonah shade and he's like, I love this bush. And then the bush dies and he's like, I'm so mad about this bush dying, I could die. And God is like, are you kidding? And God asks Jonah this brutal question. Is it right that you're angry about a bush? It's hilarious, brutal, but it's hilarious. I've said this before, I love Jonah because it's so funny. I mean, just remember, Jonah has been given very recently his own big act of the grace of God. He was rescued from the belly of a big fish which had swallowed him because he was running away from God's call. And now he's mad about God's grace extending to others. It's funny because it is so relatable. When you pair these two stories together, the point is so clearly made. It is only when we take the focus off our own receiving of grace and start looking at the worthiness of others who are also receiving it, that's when things get messy. Where do we locate our gaze? When Jesus asks the pointed question, the landowner asks this pointed question in Matthew, the literal translation is not, are you angry because I'm, are you jealous because I'm generous? But the direct translation is, is your eye evil because I am good? Maybe God is asking us to note where and when our gaze sees grace as good and when our gaze sees it as undeserving. I think if we're honest, when it's us receiving grace, boy, it's good. And when it's someone else, it is much harder to see it as good. It's, it's good for me and for you, of course, but not for that person over there. They certainly do not deserve it. This is judgment. It's all exhausting. No matter what you call it, it is exhausting. It's exhausting to be the decider, to sit and determine who is worth grace and who isn't. It's exhausting to be mad about the people who receive grace that you don't think deserve it. It's all exhausting. And to be real, no matter how hard we try to not be judgmental, we all have the people we would like to loudly complain about and do. For me, it's mean people. I save my harshest judgment for mean people. There are so many better ways to interact with someone than being mean. There's no need to be a jerk. I don't get it. It's not necessary. I bet you have your own. You could answer right now. Where do you go to judgment the quickest? I asked a few of my friends at a coffee shop this week. Here are a few of theirs. They're hilarious. Are you ready? What thing makes you get judgy and fast is what I said. People driving slow in the left lane was the first answer. Yeah, you all are like, yeah, I know, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when people have more than 15 things in the self-checkout lane. 
uh, people who don't move their car during a snow emergency. It's very specific to Minnesota, actually, but that's fine. Uh, one of my friends is a big Disney fan, and he said when, when they're in crowds, he hates when families walk shoulder to shoulder through a crowd in a big horizontal line. He thinks it's the most annoying thing in the world. Oh, when people donate their worst or oldest stuff to people in need instead of their best stuff. Uh, when people get mad in long lines or in traffic. Public patience and entitlement, they said that's what that is. Can't help it, we're just here, here we are. People who say we need to do something about the homeless population, but then protest affordable housing in their neighborhoods. And my personal favorite, and one that I actually agree with, which is a half-finished water bottle. I just fully agree with that. Oh, oh my gosh, it makes me want to pull my hair out. Uh, judgmental people, including myself, make me think so often of this clip from a show many of you have likely seen and loved, Ted Lasso. Nick's going to play it for you here. Mm. Mate, what do I need to win? Two triple twenties and a bullseye. <laughs> Good luck. Mm. You know, Rupert, guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day, I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. So I get back in my car, and I'm driving to work. And all of a sudden, it hits me. All them fellas that used to belittle me, not a single one of them were curious. You know, they thought they had everything all figured out. And so they judged everything, and they judged everyone. And I realized that they're underestimating me. Who I was had nothing to do with it. Because <laughs> if they were curious, they would ask questions, you know? Questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? <laughs> Which I would have answered, yes, sir. Every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 to I was 16 when he passed away. Barbecue sauce. I love this clip so much because what Ted is saying is what happens when we ask questions instead of get judgmental? Everybody's decided they have all the answers already. I'm including myself in this. I love to be right. I love to be right more than anything. What happens when we get curious instead of getting judgmental? Maybe I'd find out that the person who was mean just lost a loved one, and they hadn't processed their grief, and it was coming out sideways. Maybe the person working the register with the long line is subbing in for all their coworkers who tested positive for COVID, and they were the only one that was healthy enough to show up to work. Maybe that person who didn't move their car for the snow emergency was not physically able to shovel their car out, or they were out of town and had thought it wasn't supposed to snow. Maybe the person who showed up at the end of the day to work the vineyard wasn't lazy or less of a hard worker, but in fact had a disability which made working a full day impossible. 
Maybe I'd learned that they had come to the line at the start of the day and they were passed over for not being strong enough or fast enough or good enough. Maybe I'd learned that in the eyes of a marginalized or oppressed group of people, they are the ones that have been working all day. And here I show up in all my cishet, white, middle-class lady glory at the end of the day demanding the same thing as everybody else, like I didn't just start on third base. I wonder what it might look like to ask some more questions every time we felt our instinct to judge like we had all the answers rise within us. In both of these parables, Jonah and the vineyard, about God's impossibly unfair grace, Jesus asks a very pointed question. Are you mad because I'm generous? Is it right for you to be angry? Is your eye evil because I am good? It's all the same question. No matter how you translate it, it's all the same question. And if we're really letting ourselves go there, it feels like a personal attack from Jesus. One of the things I love that Jesus says in this parable is, you agreed to the full day wage. Are you really mad now? This is extravagant grace. Is your eye evil because I am good? We get to receive. Look at only ourselves. Dr. Amy Jill Levine said about this text, perhaps this parable shows us a lesson in our own human solidarity. When we get a leg up, are we willing to extend an arm? Or perhaps this parable helps us redefine our sense of what a good life or abundant living means. We might have thought the most important thing in life is to be fair, which we've often determined to mean impartial. But perhaps the most important criteria is to be generous. See, equality or fairness does not mean the same thing as equity. We all get the grace we need, full stop. Some days I need it a lot more than others, if I'm honest. At its core, both of these parables in Jonah and in Matthew aren't about fairness, but about how grace is for everyone and the very human scale we use to determine who is worthy or deserving does not work in the kingdom of God. Show up late, grace is yours. Show up early, because you've been taught that showing up early is actually on time and showing up on time is late, hypothetically. Grace is yours. Can't work a full day, grace is yours. Working your butt off all the time for zero recognition, grace is yours. The glory of this story and of grace is that grace is yours. Full stop. Either way, no matter what, grace is yours. And the next step is not judgment about who else got it, 
but curiosity and joy that you are not alone in receiving it. Amen. All right, so we've been asked some pretty uh, intense questions this morning. I think it's helpful to just keep in mind that Peter who asked this, hey, I've been here the whole time, I gave up a lot to be here, don't I get a little more? Uh, and Jonah, who's just like, I knew you were gonna do this, you're good and merciful and grace-filled, and he's so annoyed about it. They are not exempt from that same grace of God. Peter is given the keys to the kingdom. Jonah gets to keep walking around preaching the good news. They aren't. They aren't thrown out of the grace of God because they had the audacity to ask the very human question of, wait, is this fair? And the answer is no. That's the whole point. The whole point is no, it's not fair, but it's good. It's good and you are loved and the grace God has is for you and it is enough for you and it is enough for the person next to you and the person next to them and the person you don't think deserves it. It is all enough. And so we take that wisdom, that grace with us out into a world that needs to hear it as we go in peace to love and serve the Lord.